Welcome to Gridlock Break, a no-labels podcast featuring one-hour conversations with elected officials and thought leaders from across the political spectrum. Tune in weekly to hear insightful and nonpartisan perspectives on how America can solve our toughest problems. Today we will hear from Frank Luntz, one of the most insightful and influential posters and pundits in America. His best-selling book, Words That Work, explored how small language choices have a transformative impact on our politics. Today, he'll discuss his most recent polling and why he believes the House Problem Solvers Caucus has the best opportunity it has ever had to forge bipartisan change in Congress. Let's listen in. First of all, welcome. Thanks all for joining. Um, You know, No Labels has been around for 10 or 11 years now, and uh, you're getting involved or trying to get involved or learning about it at a wonderful time because... Um, you know, No Labels uh, and the Problem Solvers Caucus, which it's helped uh, start, uh, has never been more important uh, in our, it's been needed for a long time, uh, but it's taken a lot, a long time and a lot of work. Nancy's done an amazing job of, uh, of building it up. And, uh, and now over the last few years, and especially the last six months, uh, it's having an incredibly positive uh, affect on what's going on in government. Um, the opportunity to get uh, over 50 House members split half Republicans and half Democrats who don't necessarily agree on everything, but who say it's better to compromise and figure out some solution rather than having nothing happen. Um, and I think that uh, I'm fairly confident that the $908 billion COVID bill would not have happened if it wasn't for the problem solvers. Uh, the reality is the problem solvers, along with then um, I think about eight or 10 senators split between Republicans and Democrats came out with a proposal uh, for $916 billion, I think it was. And after a long time, where House and Senate leadership, you know, the, the two um, Democrats and the two Republicans in leadership um, really hadn't been talking. I think, you know, most people think that what happened is once you got a bipartisan group that said, hey, here's a program, I think that what happened is that really forced the hand of leadership to then uh, put something together. So the end bill was 908 instead of 916 billion. And obviously there were some changes. Um, but I think most people think it was good that something got done. And, and I think that um, that's sort of a crowning achievement, um, you know, for the problem solvers and no labels. And, and now with the Senate and the House even tighter, hopefully uh, continue to have a phenomenal um, ability to get stuff done. Uh, in our country. Um, so anyway, we, we have uh, Frank Luntz joining us um, briefly uh, in a brief time. Um, I don't know how many of you know him, but he's an amazing guy. He is, he's done a phenomenal amount um, of work on TV. And so he's been seen on, you know, 60 Minutes, Good Morning America. I've seen him on CNBC. I think I've seen him on CNN. I think I've seen him on many of the other news shows. He's um, uh, done an amazing amount uh, in the political front. He's uh, highly educated. Um, has a doctorate um, uh, from uh, Oxford, I think it is. If I'm reading this right, um, and um, uh, from yeah, from Oxford University. He was a fellow at Harvard. Um, he was the second youngest individual ever uh, to be a fellow at the uh, Harvard University Institute of Politics. Um, he's actually now in Dubai. He's uh, on a five-year deal uh, working over there for NYU Abu Dhabi, and I'm hoping that he's going to be on. Uh, in a few minutes, he's going to talk a little, and then we'll have a chance for questions and answers. Um, so, anyway, I think, Frank, are you now on the phone? Yes, I am. Oh, great. Thank you. Um, you have about 220 of your closest friends 
Um, and I've, I've done the intro since you said it was okay to be short and we wanted to have the most time we could with you. Um, so if you wanna start and then um, Liz and I will try to uh, consolidate questions and stuff and, and, and ask them of you. But if you wanna um, start, that would be wonderful. And uh, we, we really appreciate you taking the time uh, to talk to the group. And, and so I'm gonna hand it off to you now, thanks. Thank you. So I apologize for this because I'd rather be on the computer with you, but I've got a lot to tell you and I'm willing to take whatever questions you have. Number one, and I'll just uh, tick them off. Number one is that if you guys have seen any of my interviews, I genuinely believe that the Tom Solvers Caucus is the most important development of the last 12 months. I genuinely believe that they are the power brokers if they, if they, can continue to achieve consensus and can battle themselves through uh, both political parties tugging at them from the right and from the left, that they have a greater opportunity now to have an impact than at any time since they first, uh, uh, since they first organized. Second, is that it's going to be easier for them actually to seek alignment on the right rather than the left because uh, Kevin McCarthy in the House side is less hostile to to what they're trying to achieve than Nancy Pelosi is as Speaker. And that's neither here nor there. The, the key for them is to be able to establish leadership relationships where they will not be punished if they go against either uh, Schumer or McConnell or or McCarthy. And Kevin has said that he will not punish them. Um, and I would love to see Nancy Pelosi say the same thing. Third, right now we've been polling all the way through since I last spoke to you since the election. The most recent survey we did was on the 11th of January. And we asked the question, was the election accurate? two-thirds of Donald Trump's voters on the 11th of January, which is after the riot in the Capitol, but before the impeachment, two-thirds believed that he was elected president and the election was stolen from him. Probably this should have been the first point, but I raise this early because this is why so many Americans no longer believe or trust the electoral process. This is why we really have a fundamental problem in the country, and we can get into this in the Q&A, just how difficult it's going to be to govern over the next two years when there is no sense of faith and trust in what's happening in Washington. And I've been working at this now since 1987, and I've never seen it like this. Uh, fifth, the agenda that Joe Biden is likely to continue to pursue actually lends itself to cooperation and compromise. That he is, at least to my awareness, to what I've been told within the last 48 hours, that they're not going to seek the same kind of uh, huge uh, policy changes that frightens people on the right that other than undoing what Donald Trump did, 
that that's going to be the first objective. And that's going to give the Problem Solvers Caucus the opportunity, at least for the first six months, to work together, to establish trust and confidence, and to make a meaningful difference uh, in the legislative agenda. And lastly, and then I'm going to stop, take questions, then I'll do another set of six. Uh, lastly, the public in our research, I urge you to go to my Twitter feed, not to follow me, but just to see the focus groups that I've been doing and how bad it's become. It's one of the reasons why I've given up on politics. I, don't, I simply don't want to do them anymore. Is because people are so loud and so mean. And it's not just embarrassing, it is frustrating how horrible we have become as a country and how intolerant we are now of those that we disagree with. If you watch them, there's a particular segment that is uh, about two minutes long where they just spend the entire time yelling at each other. I don't say anything. I don't get involved. And it is so awful that I don't, it's just not something I want to do anymore. So with that, let's do Q&A. And then I'll, I'll do one more set of information. So I'm sorry, do you want to do some questions first or do you want to do the other information first? I'd rather break it up because it's easier that way. People, the questions will be more targeted and more uh, probably more effective. Okay, so just one quick question came up um, to start with. You gave some percentages, and um, I I didn't catch all of them. I think I guess the question is you. I think you said the percentage, and was it of Republicans that believe about the election? But do you have? the percentage of Republicans and Democrats and independents. So just to put in perspective that the, the number you gave us. Uh, no, because specifically, I, it's a large sample of Trump voters. And we wanted to understand just how alienated they were from the system because their guy had lost. Okay. I do have other data about the three political parties and where they, and where they are ideologically. But I just, I thought that your members would find it fascinating that, and scary, that two thirds believe what Donald Trump is telling them, that the election was stolen and that he was duly elected. And in fact, I'll give you one more statistic. 60% of Trump voters say they will never trust an election again. We looked at this back in 2000 when, uh, when, uh, uh, Al Gore and George Bush uh, had a dead heat. And at that time, 29% of the Democrats said they would never trust another election. So you can see how disproportionately dangerous this current election has been. Got it. Okay, so we have lots of questioners. Um, Andy Tish, do you want to start off? And, you know, Andrew's been involved with No Labels for a long, long time. So thanks for that. Do you want to um, start with yours. Sure. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Josh. Hi, Frank. Um, I, I'm just going to ask this uh, along the same lines. So if they're uh, not, uh, if they don't like the electoral system that they have now, is there an electoral system that they seem to, that people seem to be more uh, trusting of, or uh, 
Is it just we don't like what we have? It's simply we don't like what we have. And the people who say that are ones who are not familiar with the other systems. And they're not offering any kind of reform with the exception of they know they want some sort of ballot integrity legislation. They just don't know what that should be. Thank you. Okay, so there's another question here that someone has heard you um, talk on Media Buzz and you commented that that uh, Brett Baer and Howard Kurtz uh, were real news people or uh, something, he said something to that effect. And the questioner is, um, you know, who on CNN or and or MSNBC would you similarly categorize? Uh, MSNBC, Brian Williams. Well, I know he has a point of view. You usually cannot tell. And he asks brilliant, brilliant questions. On CNN, and I hate to say this, but the pressure from the top has been so great to be just blatantly anti-Trump that even a Wolf Blitzer, if you do a content analysis, which is something that I do, and you actually measure the tone of the questions, the words that are used, and the direction, I would like to say that Wolf Blitzer is truly non-aligned, and I can't do that. Like, no one can tell me, you cannot tell where Chris Wallace, where he stands, because Chris Wallace is equally tough on anyone who he's interviewing. That is not the case with anyone on CNN, unless you can, you can throw out a few names, but Don Lemon, uh, Jake Tapper, the ones that we typically associate Cuomo, uh, that we associate with politics, they have a decidedly uh, anti-Republican, pro-Democrat bias. The, most of the Fox people are pro-Republican. The ones I named are not. Uh, and Neil Cavuto as well. I would put in the category of being uh, uh, accurate and nonpartisan. In fact, Neil Cavuto, during a Trump interview, actually stopped the president uh, and challenged him on his facts. That's what I'm looking for. People who speak truth to power on the side that you're not expecting them to. So when a Fox person holds Donald Trump accountable for what he says, that's what should be happening. When CNN or MSNBC hold the Democrats accountable for what they say, that's what should be happening because you know you're getting a straightforward perspective. The tragedy is, and in fact, it's why I appear on CNBC and Bloomberg more than any other cable networks now, because the two of them give you a straightforward approach. And in fact, the show that I believe is the best on cable right now is uh, Squawk Box on CNBC between 6 and 9 a.m. East Coast time. They do have political leanings, but the show is completely balanced and incredibly accurate in how it approaches the news. Okay, thanks. There's a follow-up question on the percentages, um, and it, it is that um, you said that two-thirds of Trump voters say they believe the election was stolen. Um, have you polled those same Trump voters to see how many would support Trump for president in 2024 or join a Patriot Party as a split off if Trump did that? Yes, we have. Actually, I've done both of those. Roughly 30% of the people voted for Donald Trump if he starts a new party. Roughly 30% will split off from the Republican Party. And by the way, that's the end of the Republican Party as we know it. There are very few places where if you lose 30% of your vote, you can still win an election. Uh, as far as Trump running, uh, about half of the 
half of Trump's vote wanted to run in 2024, and he would start off in the low 40s among his own vote in a primary. And if Donald Trump does not run, the person who starts off in the lead is Mike Pence, but that's probably because he's best known. Sticking, um, uh, well, I guess now I, I, another question about the media. There's a question here about what's the res- what do you think the responsibility of the media in pre- perpetuating the lies about the election being stolen? If someone were holding a megaphone, uh, you know, shouting fire, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess what's your perception of the of of the media, and also what do you think about the defamation lawsuits um, uh, from Dominion? The thing that I'm singularly proudest about at this time uh, in this election cycle is that we saw what was going to happen. I may even have talked about this on a call with you guys, which is that Trump is going to go ahead on election night because of how the votes are being cast and counted, and that it would take at least a couple of days for Biden to catch up. And I even called it on CNBC that by Saturday, there'd be enough votes counted that we would know that Joe Biden had won. Not only did I pick the margin, which I said would be 4%, but I even picked the time. The reason why I did that was not to be provocative, was to say again and again to anyone who would listen that Donald Trump is going to claim victory on election night. He knew that his own vote would be counted early. He knew that this process was going to look bad for him uh, in the long term. And so he had to try to make it his declaration as early as possible. Well, you know what? The media should have spent a lot more time on that and a lot less time just criticizing other things about him because that turned out to be the most important factor in so many people not believing that the election was accurate. They should have been so clear again and again, reminding people that if you're counting or the other alternative would have been to count the absentee ballots as they come in and not wait until election night. That set us up for this horrific situation that we're in right now. And then the second thing about the Dominion lawsuit, good for them. I, I worked for Rudy Giuliani. I used to have Rudy Giuliani pictures of myself and the mayor up all throughout my house, and I've taken all of them down. This is not the man that I worked for. This is not the man that I considered the single bravest politician back in, uh, in 2001. I attended dozens of baseball games with him. I owe him a lot for my career, but he's changed. And I'm glad that Old Dominion is suing. That, that, uh, that's not Old Dominion. Dominion is suing. And I think they've got a very good case. Um, okay, someone has a question about um, have you do you know anything about or have you pulled anything for the people who think the uh, the election was stolen, how they feel about the fact that there were many, many Republicans elected in those um, same elections and and how they think about um, you know an election where they think it wasn't fair for Trump, but many other Republicans won? It's one. It's what I beg Kevin McCarthy to say, uh, and to say now, and to have said weeks and weeks ago, which is that this election we almost took control of the House. Donald Trump may have lost, but Republicans were winning all across the country. Not a single 
Republican incumbent was defeated at a time when Donald Trump was losing state after state after district after district, that if he had not acted in such a petulant manner, they would have won both those seats in Georgia. I, you're asking if people who are not sophisticated politically, if they understand the faultiness of their logic, the answer is no, because that's not who they are. And, uh, and I, I don't mind. I actually, I can't criticize people who have the wrong perception. I can criticize them when they stop being decent people. The reason why I got involved in politics is that I was so proud of my country. I, I remember when I was a kid being called a great American and how that made me feel so wonderful. And I don't feel we're so great anymore. And when people say that to me now, I actually ask them to please take it back because, because of our electoral system, because of how partisan we've become, because we needed so badly an organization like No Labels and the Problem Solvers Caucus. But because we got into this situation, I've never felt as pessimistic about our country, about our future. And it's why I voluntarily am stepping away from all this. It breaks my heart. It gives me a, a headache. And I have never, I was raised to be honest. I was raised to be candid, but I was never raised to put up with watching my country go to hell. I don't care how wealthy you are and some of you are very successful. I don't care how successful you are and some of you are at the top of your profession. If we don't have a country that we're proud of, we don't have a country that's united or at least can get along, then money and success mean nothing at all. If I can't love my country because of the people who live in it, then it's very hard for me to function. And I, I, I feel that way. And, and there's nothing that's happened in the last two months to make me feel any better. And I'm going to give you a warning. It is going to get even worse uh, two weeks from now when they start this uh, trial in the Senate. As bad as it is now, it is going to be worse when we get to that point. God help us. Okay. Um, we're going to go to a few direct questions. Um, Representative Don Bacon has a question. And just as a heads up, um, after him, Maxine Clark and then Hap Stein, and then Richard um, Kasnow. So if you can all be ready so that we don't have um, problems hearing your questions. But Rep Representative Bacon, do you want to start, please? Real, real quick, and I, I appreciate it, uh, Josh. And I, and I like love Frank Lutz, love listening to him. I'm one of the congressmen that I won our district by five points, and President Trump lost by six, same party, about 11% spread. And really what, what it revealed something deeper with his loss was the loss of the suburbs. And so I was hoping to be frank and just comment. I think the, one of the keys to this election was the president lost the suburbs and, but yet GOP candidates did fairly well there. And, and just maybe another comment and I'll just, and I'll yield back. I think we do need a commission or a study on the election, not because I believe there was fraud, but precisely for the reason that Frank mentioned that 60% or 60, almost two thirds Republicans I think there was fraud and I got to figure out how do we regain confidence and bring them back in. So, but with that, I yield. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Thank God this is not Congress. So you don't have to yield. Uh, the, uh, the, the public absolutely supports bipartisan support for election law reform. 
uh, uh, ballot integrity. There is considerable support for anything that will prevent what just happened from happening. And it is something that I'd love to see the Republicans and Democrats work together on. But I'll tell you that that's an impossibility because what the Democrats prioritize when it comes to elections and ballots and what the Republicans prioritize are two very different things. And I don't know if it's possible to achieve common ground on that. In terms of the suburbs, is a very simple answer. Suburban white moms got fed up with Donald Trump's language, fed up with his behavior. The truth is Donald Trump could have won this election. It was close enough that he could have won. And his fate was sealed with his performance in the first debate. These very same suburban white moms saw the president so arrogant and so rude that that uh, 18% of them uh, uh, who had kids who were watching with them sent their kids away from the television set. I'm trying to remember the number. I believe it was 18%. He, you cannot win for president if people don't like you, even if they like what you're doing. And he became so intolerable for so many people in suburban America that they would not forgive him. And that was it for him. And there was no way for him to come back. But uh, if, if he had performed much more like a human being in that debate, the result would have not been that way. And by the way, if he still had access to Twitter and he were to hear these comments right now, you know what he would do to me. You know that it would be tweet after tweet that I'm a loser, that I'm an idiot. The public, thank God, finally said, no, sir, you may be president of the United States, but that does not give you the right to be rude and insulting and mean. I say to you all that there's one thing that is equally important to rejecting the labels, the partisanship in this country which is a renewed commitment to civility and decency. And that my hope is that that is part of what No Labels and the Problem Solvers Caucus does over the next two years, which is to sign, which is to develop and sign a clean campaign pledge, which includes no gratuitous attacks, which includes a commitment that you won't say something in the way, if you don't want your kids to talk that way, you won't talk that way. Uh, Joe Manchin does the, has a clean campaign pledge in the Senate side. It would be great if no labels would re read this in the House side. Okay, Maxine Clark, are you? Yes. Can you I'm understand? here. Great. I'm here. Thank you. Uh, thanks for that, uh, Josh. I wanted to ask you, Frank. Thank you for this information, and I can I sense your your concern for our country, and I think we all agree with you. I was just curious, and you may have answered it in your last statement about Trump. But what do you think of, uh, I'm from Missouri, what do you think about Josh Hawley and what he's positioned himself for in the future? He destroyed himself by what he did because it looks so calculating and so political. And if it wasn't, then he's a bad communicator. But that idea of putting your fist up in the air in defiance, this is a tragedy. If you have lost faith in the electoral process so much, if you have to leave this vote 
to challenge the Electoral College. And this is not a moment of defiance. This is a moment to hang your head in shame and sadness and regret. It's not what he said, which you all may disagree with as well, but it's that photo, that visual. Because to most people that smacked of, of the ugliness of politics, to most people that said that he was more interested in the photo op, more interested in making a statement than he was in making a difference, which is something else about the Problem Solvers Caucus, which is so essential, is to stay away from the traditional politics that has so poisoned our electoral system and so poisoned the minds and the words of Americans, regardless of whether you're involved in politics, that, we, that there needs to be a commitment to stay away from, from that toxicity and instead to focus on policy. And by the way, there's a slogan in there. Thank you. Okay, next up, um, my chat just died. It was uh, Pap Stein. I must have thank, so upset. Thank, thank you, and, and thank you, Frank. My question is, how does the Republican Party become the, the party of the, the congressman and Rob Portman uh, and Jeff Flake and not the party of Jim Jordan and Josh Hawley um, and Donald Trump? I mean, what advice from a practical standpoint do you have? Uh, and, and then second part of that question is, uh, does the Patriot Party uh, split off from the Republican Party, or does Trump, in effect, run away um, all of these solid conservatives and, 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 and moderates? Well, in answer to the first question, Jeff Flake was driven from the Republican Party, and Rob Portman just announced that he's not running again. So two of the three people that you pointed out are actually will not be part of the Congress in two years. Uh, I think that they have to return to core principles. Uh, and I'm, I, I, and actually, I never duck a question with you all because I appreciate and I respect the people who are on this call. I know they've got donors from both political parties involved, and I really do see you as the solution. And if I answer your question in full, then I'm committing the same kind of error, which is I'm playing politics, I'm being partisan, and I choose not to be. I'm still very close friends with Kevin McCarthy. But I said to him, I don't want to be involved in that partisan stuff. I want to do problem solvers instead. So I don't, are you guys aware that we did a call for them? That we had voters on and they could listen? And the voters talked about what they liked and disliked about Congress and it got so ugly. The yelling and screaming that we just had in our session uh, that's on the web that you can see, it's actually done for the Problem Solvers Caucus. And I urge you, what I should have done, if I'd gotten the time zone right, is just played for you that two-minute clip. And, if, and I won't be able to get to it on this call, but on your next briefing call that you guys do, begin it with those two minutes, and you will see just how much damage this election did to our psyche. I've been moderating focus groups for over 30 years now. It has never been this bad where people will not, will not stop yelling at each other, even when the moderator reminds them that this is being videotaped. This is going to appear on TV. They don't care. 
They would rather make a statement than make a difference. They would rather shout down their opposition than offer any kind of positive alternatives. And, and I'll answer both your, your question this way. Instead of telling people what you're against, you have to tell people what you are for. If either political party wants to restore itself, the first party, the first party that says, here are the things that we believe in. Here's our commitment to the American people. This is exactly what we will do. And we will do it for its merits, not because we oppose the opposition. I am convinced in all the research I've done that the party that says we will not criticize, we will propose. In fact, the better way to say it is we will propose, not oppose. Is the party that wins the majority in 2002. I really believe that. A positive campaign rather than a negative campaign. It's much harder to do. It requires much more attention to the words and language you use. And I'd be happy to give you a few of those words if you, if you would find it helpful. But it focuses on what is positive and proactive rather than tearing things down. Okay, so Richard Kaznow, are you on? Yes, I'm here, thank you. Um, Frank, I wanted to know whether you have any data or are willing to make any estimates about um, how many of the people who, um, who are in that cohort that uh, are negative about the election results, how, how many of them either sympathize with or would themselves partake in uh, violence uh, as we saw at the Capitol? Uh, it's, it would be one, less than 1%. What happened at the Capitol was an extreme reaction that, was a, that, was, that happened because of a lot of different factors. Uh, it is not mainstream. It's not even a minority of people. It's a very small percentage of people who would do something like that. But you had all of those people involved at one time in one place. It was incendiary. How often does a thunderstorm result in a huge cataclysmic fire? The answer is less than one in 10,000. But when it hits, you never forget it. That is what that situa situation was right there. It should not have happened. But you had comments from Don Jr., which, and I, by the way, maybe someone can explain to me why Don Jr. has been let off the hook. Because of all the people who spoke that day, nobody incited or attempted to incite more than Don Jr. And no one has been holding him accountable. I think that the Republicans would do themselves some good to remind or to show people that, hey, we are not partisan here. We are not political here. These were the words of Don Jr. And he should be held accountable for what he said. So I'm going to say less than 1%. Okay, so I have a question here. Um, someone is saying, um, you know, how do you, uh, this person is asking, um, you know, the truth has disappeared from much of political talk and what is needed to bring it front and center. I think that's sort of consistent with the comments you made about um, so, so few of the people on the news are really giving the news. So do you have any perspectives on how to try to improve the situation? Well, I wouldn't have a problem with actually having a fact checker participating in these debates. They couldn't do it this time because the, the, the process 
it came about it too late. And so it looked like it was designed just to criticize Donald Trump. But I think that having fact-checking would be very helpful. Uh, the political, the political, the politifact lie of the year. I think you guys have probably heard of politifact. The problem with them is that they are partisan. They are ideological. It is so hard now to find honest brokers. But I'm, I want to want to give credit actually to the head of the debate commission, Frank Ferenkoff. As, as the uh, former chairman of the Republican National Committee, one would expect him to be highly partisan. Darren Koff has been able to save these debates and been able to get these candidates to, to show the American people where they really stand and has been able to put aside his partisanship, he's clearly a Republican, for the good of the country. And that somehow, which, you know, I'm just thinking, this guy, Joe Biden, should give Frank Ferenkoff the Medal of Freedom Award. He's not going to be doing the debates for that. I can't believe I'm, this is, this will be the best thing I do on this call because some of you know Biden. The idea of the Democratic president giving the Medal of Freedom to a former chairman of the Republican National Committee who has run the debate commission in an exemplary, exceptional fashion for more than 20 years. I can't think of anyone who's done more to protect our freedoms by running free and fair and honest debates. And for a Democratic president to give it to the RNC chairman would be magic. Um, Jeffrey Rosen, you've been uh, waiting patiently. I'm sorry. Uh, do you want to go ahead? <laughs> uh, very patiently. Thank you, Josh. Frank, uh, thank you for your comments. Uh, incidentally, I agree with you completely on Squawk Box. Uh, my question is this. Um, where we are, as you describe it, is a bad place. And if I interpret what you're saying, it goes from bad to worse over time. Um, so what I try and think about is what can be done uh, apart from the proposed don't oppose initiative that you recommended, what can be done to slow or arrest the deterioration so that over a period of two to four years, you can at least, it's possible to at least stabilize, if not improve, the confidence in the electoral system as well as the confidence in, demo in democracy. To the electoral system, it basically, that is, that'll be the best question of this entire session because that's the crux of this. And I am not just nervous about it. I'm not afraid about it. I believe it is going to deteriorate further. And, and it's inconceivable to me the consequences of this. We're already on knife's edge. And for it to get any worse, I, I, I just cannot imagine the consequences. It requires the public to trust. And this is what it's all about. It's trust. Do you trust the people who you elect? Do you trust the electoral process? Do you trust Congress and the Senate to do the people's work? Do you trust the president to tell the truth? to trust the news media, to demand the truth. We have lost that faith and trust, and it allows these cable networks to, to drive a wedge between us. It allows the politicians to, to ignore the focus on results and instead focus on messaging. Uh, the internal workings of the two political parties are so broken. AOC doesn't care 
what damage she does to the Democratic Party. Uh, the Republicans are so determined, some conservative Republicans, to remove Liz Cheney and not give her the appreciation, the respect for casting the toughest vote of her life. Instead of rewarding those people who are willing to stand up and say enough is enough, we punish them cruelly and inhumanely. But the problem is, I don't know how to restore trust unless, unless you have uh, uh, forces of accountability. And the problem with that is, frankly, over, under the last four years, what did Donald Trump do to the FBI? What did he do to the CIA? What did he do to every organization? It's tried to destroy their credibility. He did it to the news media. He did it to every organization. And if we don't have that sense of accountability, then we will never restore our sense of trust. And this is a challenge for your organization, people smarter than me. How can we create, what are the institutional devices and levers that could be used to let people know that what is said is what is done or, or, or people say what they mean and mean what they say. If we do not achieve that level of accountability, we cannot fix the system. I just don't know how to do that. Yeah, I think the question's probably been answered. Um, my, my concern is how do we right the ship? Pure and simple, what can no labels do and what can we do individually in our communities? You have, there are certain members of Congress, senators, and I'll do the senators, the governors, that simply don't campaign, that they don't do, they don't add to the ugliness. Now, I don't know if No Labels is ever going to support a Tim Scott because you may say he's too conservative for you. But Tim Scott, as a very um, religious and very thoughtful and very values-driven elected official, just doesn't play, just doesn't do the things that divide us uh, on the Democratic side. Mitch Landrieu, the former mayor of Louisiana, uh, of New Orleans. Uh, Michael Bennett, the senator from Colorado. Even, even Cory Booker, senator from New Jersey. Yeah, they're political. They are proud Democrats. But they're not, they don't play the same games. They don't do the same, the politics. A Ben Sass, who has the guts to stand up to the president, knowing how popular Trump is in Nebraska. There are certain politicians, and I don't know if you should be endorsing them, but I do know that you should be applauding them. And maybe you give, and maybe you do this already, that you give out an award every month to an elected official who is willing to stand up for the country and take the heat politically. And you go back and forth, Republican, Democrat, Republican, Democrat, because an endorsement, you guys are going to be a lot more famous two years from now than you are today. You're more famous today than you were two years ago. With that fame goes credibility. And getting that kind of, of support of winning the monthly uh, leader of the year, leader of the month award would help them in their election campaign. So that's giving people role models, calling people out, not just for the bad stuff that they do, but in this case, calling them out for doing something courageous. And I'd be happy to write the language for you. And by the way, you should all know that I've offered to do the language for the Prom Solvers Caucus, and I think it will happen. So don't look at me as a Republican anymore, because that's not who I am. 
uh, I developed a skill in words and phrases, and I'm willing to apply it to what they want to do if they're interested. But uh, you save the country and you instill uh, confidence by rewarding good behavior. And there are some people who deserve that reward. So uh, Mel, uh, please. Yes, you pronounce it right. Hi there, hi Frank. Um, A a question on uh, on media. Um, And this picks up on on some comments that you made a little bit earlier. Millions of, 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 of voters watch no one but Hannity and listen to no one but Rush Limbaugh on the one hand. On the other hand, We've got millions who listen to and watch no one but uh, you know Rachel Maddow and uh, and Morning Joe. How would you suggest, or do you have any suggestions on how we reach these who watch nothing but partisan media with a more balanced message? I think that's one of the keys forward. I can't answer that. I don't know because you can't. There's no law that says that you must watch balanced media. Right. right. And the problem is that as bad as that is, actually, if they're getting information from social media, that's even worse. If they're being told, if, if all the information they're getting is from some of these websites, then it's even a worse situation. And, and that's probably the single greatest problem that we've got right now is that there are millions of Americans who now get their news to affirm themselves rather than inform themselves. And that's splintering. The very interesting debate for you all to host. It's, this gets to the question of should Twitter have removed Donald Trump permanently? Because there were millions of Americans, we didn't even go and mention that one, there were our millions of Americans who got all of their news from Donald Trump's Twitter account. Well, of course they think that the election was robbed because that's all they were told. And, but, but, we, but we're a democracy. Uh, we're actually, we're a republic is more accurate. We can't tell people what to watch. I don't have a way to get to people. I don't know how to do that other than to make it interesting and compelling. I'm really hoping that one of these media moguls will make a decision that the American people, or at least enough of them, don't want to get news from the left, don't want to get news from the right, that they want to get what is accurate and fair, and informative, and factual. But right now, other than, frankly, other than CNBC, which has a fair audience, and Bloomberg, which has a small but important audience, all the cable news programs have something to prove, have a side to pick, and, uh, and there's nowhere on the web that they're getting straightforward information. Again, I hate to do this, but this is another question I cannot answer because I don't know how to get around this roadblock. You are correct to point it out. I don't know how to solve it. Um, there's a question from one of our um, supporters here asking how you think Joe Biden is doing. Uh, I thought that his inauguration speech was memorable and significant. By the way, I thought that the young poet was the best thing about that day. In fact, her speech is one of the best speeches I've ever heard. And it gave me a little bit of hope in the country. Not a lot, but a little. Uh, I think if we could produce more young people like her, we could fix our schools, uh, then we would be in much better shape. 
And I think that the way that he's handled these decisions and the executive orders that overturned what Donald Trump had, uh, he doesn't do triumph. He doesn't do, do, I don't know what you call it. There's no uh, touchdown dance. He's basically working on substance. He is doing so in a way that's devoid of ugliness that characterized a lot of the last four years. I think that he's, uh, I think he's done fine. I think he's done better than fine. Again, do not take this as an endorsement of these policies because I, I still don't. But as a president, I think he's helped to restore sanity to, uh, to the White House in the last uh, five days, six days. Okay. Um, did, Frank, you had mentioned that you wanted to, um, uh, that we have about eight minutes left. Was there anything, we still have a few more questions, but you had also said you had some other information you wanted to share. Do you want to continue with the questions or share information? Uh, I'll share one bit, which is I'll give you five examples of language that's incredibly powerful that should be embraced by uh, the Problem Solvers Caucus and by No Labels. The most powerful word in the English language is the word imagine. When you ask people to imagine something, they stop hearing your voice and they stop seeing your vision and they hear their voice and their vision. So imagine a country where everyone's dreams became everyone's realities. We all have a different vision of that, but it's all correct because it comes from us. Imagine is what is the most positive futuristic way, context to communicate an issue. That's number one. Number two is what the public really wants is a government and a, a life that is more efficient and more accountable, more efficient. So we learn to do more with less, more effective. So we stop doing what we cannot do well and more accountable so that when we make mistakes, people know that they can have those mistakes fixed. If you demonstrate efficiency, effectiveness, and accountability, you will restore public trust. Uh, number three, because I'm so concerned about COVID and how we're handling it, uh, the public wants uh, the, the, sci the science the, and the fact-based science approach. We want uh, the health and safety we need and the personal responsibility and local control we deserve. That is the best way to communicate a COVID policy that touches the Democratic Party's concerns, the Republican Party's concerns, and the country's concerns. I've been trying very hard to get governors to adopt that context to only a limited amount of success. Uh, fourth, we need to take a fact-based approach not evidence-based. And this is particularly important for you all. The problem with evidence is that people think of evidence for the prosecution, evidence for the defense. It's got a legal connotation to it. And the fact that there's evidence on both sides cheapens it. A fact is a fact and it's indisputable. And so our language should be fact-based uh, in how we communicate. And lastly, and I'm trying to think of what's, what's probably the best, meaningful and measurable. If we want people to pay attention, it's not enough for us to have credibility. 
our positions should be meaningful and what we say should be meaningful and measurable. Meaningful so that it matters to the people we wish to reach and measurable so they have the chance to see for themselves whether or not we've achieved what we promised. These are five examples of about 50 or maybe 100 that I've got that should be volunteered to both political parties so they'll be more so they'll be more effective in their communication. Okay, we should still have time for one more question. You know, Frank, I have a question I've been asking myself a lot, uh, and I'm gonna turn around and, and put it to you. Uh, there are a fair number of people on this, uh, on this call with some influence and relevant skills. Uh, you know, at this time of crisis for the country, uh, how do you understand your responsibility? How do you understand the responsibility of people like us? I don't think we have the luxury of, you know, turning our backs on things that disturb us. I think we have to face them. So what's your take on my question? Uh, it's probably going to surprise you because I've gone through this myself over the last few years and particularly over the last few months. And the reason why I chose to step away from doing these, of bringing the voters' voices to the public, I was just so frustrated that these television networks wanted to put on warring pundits to yell at each other for 10 minutes instead of listening to the voices of the public. And when those voices are not heard, they get angry. And when they're not heard, they get, they get that sense of betrayal or, or the feeling of being ignored or forgotten. And so I've, in essence, given up. Uh, and I need to find someone who will, who will do what I do and have the patience to fight through it again. So I agree with you that if we have a skill or a capability, we have to bring it to the forefront. The other part is, we have to be, we have to actually have an impact. It's not, effort does not matter. They say that close only matters in hand grenades and horseshoes. Well, effort doesn't matter. It's good, it's people to appreciate it, but unless you have impact and you're not achieving anything. And I think that your effort should be, you've got to get the politicians in the room and you surround them with people who have skills that they may not have, and you can create, uh, I don't know if, you, if it's creating an army or creating a message, but I know that, that there's an expertise. For example, I'll go back to COVID since we did it so badly and it's such a disaster. We needed more health professionals to stand up to Donald Trump and say to him, no, this has not been solved. No, this is going to get much, much worse. And we're not going to let you talk about swallowing bleach. But our Republican healthcare professionals were essentially quiet. They didn't want to challenge him. On the Democratic side, we knew that Nancy Pelosi's uh, stimulus package, the one that was $3 trillion, had zero chance of passing. So those of you who have a relationship with her, and you're on, on, uh, involved in finance, you know what Tweet Shoyim was gonna do to the debt. You know that it was not a sensible 
uh, reasonable policy, but no one said a word. I think you have to, number one, speak truth to power. Number two, bring that expertise to bear. Number three, you've got to sit face to face with the people who can make a difference. And number four, you don't take no for an answer. And if you're willing to do that, then you absolutely can make a difference. But the problem is there are too many of us who want that photograph with the elected official on our wall. And this is not your group. This is not your group. But there are too many people. I know this, for example, that this is happening with another country who's having an election in March, that all these people complain about the current prime minister. I will not mention any names, but they complain about him in private and they want to get the photograph taken with him in, in public. You have to be willing to lose a friend to speak truth to power. And there are very few people who are willing to do it. And so every two years, our system just gets worse and worse. I know that's not the answer you wanted, but uh, that is an accurate. I gave you four things that must happen. The problem is I don't believe that most people are willing to do those four things. Thanks. Well, listen, we're at uh, one minute after five and we try to end on time. So Frank, thank you very much. Um, I would say that uh, I don't disagree with what you said at the end, other than to say that I think that the Problem Solvers Caucus has been able to get themselves to work together in a positive and constructive way. And so I'm um, hopeful that that they can, uh, that that can spread. And we now have the bicamerals with about, it's, it seems like it's up to maybe 16 to 20 senators that are also willing to do so. So um, maybe a slightly less grim ending, which is there's a lot of negatives, but uh, I think the problem solvers and no labels is, 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 is surely a positive on trying to work together. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.